What'd you say? I said, hey, dog, smash that record button, son. <laughs> Welcome to episode 314 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Marshall Bach. You got the episode number right this time, Brian. I got it right. Last week I said episode 312 and it was episode Mm -hmm. 313. Yeah, the episode so nice we claimed it twice. (laughs) So if you heard that and were confused and looked down at your phone to double check you weren't listening to a repeat, it was my fault. So here we go. We're back on track. This is episode 314 and boy... Oh boy, do we have a fun one for you. Uh, we caught up with our friend Haraldr Thorlifson, a.k.a. Hallie, the founder, CEO, and social media intern of Wayno, your favorite agency, whether you know it or not. Uh, we had a great time. It's been a few years since we've had Hallie on the show, so we get to touch base on how the last few years have been going, and the conversation takes us to many places. But before we get into that, let's do a little bit of follow-up. Yeah. Okay. So my first thing is I messed up too last episode. Uh, When we were talking about the iPhone event, I mentioned that I was excited about the 2020 iPhone having a micro LED display and talked about that a little bit. I remembered it wrong. Go figure. Turns out it was the it was the Apple Watch, the 2020 Apple Watch that was rumored to have this micro LED screen. And I think I guess they're really hard to make, which is why they're starting with a small screen and not a big one first. But anyways, should be cool regardless of whichever device it comes on. But I think it actually might make a pretty big difference because the new Apple Watches have always on screens on them, but they're OLED, which makes me wonder if they'll have burn in problems because my OLED TV has burn in problems. That ain't good. Yeah. I, I watch so much news that I, I literally have breaking news burned into my... Because, like, every channel just says breaking news all the fucking time. All the time, 24-7. All the time. Yep, so I have breaking news burned. Anytime there's, like, a, a reddish color, because that banner is always red, right? Yeah. So anytime there's a reddish color flat on the screen, I can just see this, like, black breaking news. Oh, my God. That's probably the worst thing you could have burned in. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's like... Oh, boy, I probably shouldn't have been watching so much news at the time. I was really depressed. Anyways, uh, yeah, quick follow-up. I messed up. Not on the iPhone, on the watch. Uh, And speaking of the Apple event, uh, we're not going to talk about it this time because we have a long-ass interview with Hallie, but we will talk about it next episode when it is truly, truly cold and no longer a hot take. All right. We also got some tweets from last week. Uh, This first one came from Hannah Cunningham, who says, My focus for upcoming sprints are smooth edges and learning to enjoy the last 10% of the work. Thanks to episode 297 of Design Details. This will be interesting. Good luck, Hannah. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Welcome to the battle. The hardest 10%. Sucks. And Hannah included a photo with smooth edges written onto a a glass wall for as a reminder. Let us know how it turns out. Yeah. Hopefully you're better at it than we are. If you have that sort of mindset and patience going into it, you'll be fine. Uh, We also got another tweet from David Offalayan. I hope I'm saying that right. Thanks, David, for the tweet. This says, Design Details is just the best design podcast ever. Ugh talk about flattery can't argue with that can't argue with that i mean the facts speak for themselves david (laughs) continues this week's cool thing happened to align with my favorite things right now uh this was the mx master 3 david's getting it soon and planning to learn the art of finger drumming serendipity maybe you could program all the buttons on the mx master 3 to be finger drum inputs think about that Mm. our last tweet comes from 
uh, Yule Albert. Again, hoping I'm pronouncing your name right. Yule says, what? No mention of the Android 10 release? I know one of you has an Android phone. I think we both do, right? Yeah. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the revamped gestures. That is a fantastic point. I did get Android 10 on my Pixel 3a. At this point, it was last week. I think I got the update. So it's out. We didn't give an update, but we could talk about a follow-up on Android 10, specifically the fact that it's renamed Android 10. We're off the dessert menu. Off the menu. Yeah. Can I say that? Off the menu. <laughs> Yep, and yeah, maybe we'll do a combo iPhone-Android thing next week. Yeah, cool. So thanks thanks for calling us out, Yule. All right, that's it for tweets. All right, let's, uh, let's do this interview. Yeah, here we go. This is Geraldo Thorlifson. Hope you enjoy. Hallie, welcome back to the show. What's up? Uh, so the first time we talked to you, not the last time, but the first time we talked to you was in July of 2015. So over four years ago, Mm -hmm. maybe some things have changed since then. For people who don't know you, how would you describe yourself? Very handsome. (laughs) Yeah. Accurate. It's pretty good. (laughs) If you had to elaborate. (laughs) Uh, I am, uh, I founded an agency called The Weno, and I am the, the CEO here. And I come from a design background before that, and I have also done other things. Yes, you have. And I'm very handsome. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so I've listened back to our episode from July 2015. And at that mm-hmm. point, you were a year and a half into Wayno. Mm-hmm. And one question we asked at the time was, how big do you want Wayno to be? And your answer was that you really didn't see that much of an increase in quality once you crossed a certain number of people. Mm-hmm. So I sort of wanted to touch in. How is Wayno doing? It's been four years. How's the team grown? Have you sort of kept to that size principle where uh, smaller is higher quality? (laughs) I, I, I didn't listen to, I should have probably listened to what I said so I could prepare for this. I can clarify because it'll give you a little bit of it out. You, you said you said specifically uh, that you wanted to expand the number of offices that you could have small teams in each location. Uh, yeah, I, uh, that still pretty much holds. I don't know if I qualified what small means, but what we have talked about here in the last year or so is not having each office go much beyond 50 people. Okay. Uh, and you recently opened an LA office, right? So that's up to four? Yeah, we have four offices. Uh, the LA office is kind of a, a micro studio, but we have sort of three main offices, the New York, uh, Iceland, and San Francisco. Got it. Where did that number 50 come from? I don't know. Uh, numbers come from number heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're Arabic initially. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is going to be so fun. <laughs> Uh, I I just think uh, you you get to a size where people don't know uh, the people that they're working with in the the office, where they don't connect with them. And 50 was also where I felt you could have a good mix of of disciplines so that you have, you know, strategists and you have designers and you have content people and you have different types of designers and producers. And sort of 50 seems to me like a good set of... Like if you have qualified people, 50 of them in a group could probably tackle a lot, most of the problems that we want to be able to tackle. Sure. Well, tell me a little bit about how the business has been going in the last four years. So when we 
first touched in, you were <laughs> we basically asked you to enumerate your entire client list, which you did. And Brendan and I were just so in awe. We're like, oh my God, wow, that's so impressive. So impressive. I didn't I didn't listen to the episode. What what were some of the impressive places? <laughs> you listed Red Bull, Facebook, Google. Reuters, a few startups. You were working with Superhuman at the time, which Mm -hmm. obviously has come a long way since then. And you said, there's more. Do you want me to keep going? And Brendan and I were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going, keep going. Tell us more about all these cool clients. <laughs> but give me an update on the on the business. How's Wayno overall? Things are, are good. We're at about 65 people right now uh, in total across the three main offices. And then we've been growing steadily in terms of of money as well as you can imagine i I don't want to get into that but things are things are good you said you don't want to get into it or if we want to get into it yeah and tell us about them financials (laughs) just just kidding (laughs) well you are fortune fortune 5000 uh it's not fortune it's inc 5000 oh inc 5000 yeah the fastest fastest growing companies in america how do you get on that list? How do they know? Yeah. Um, they ask every single company in America, are you growing fast? And then they say yes <laughs> or no. And if you say yes a lot, then you yeah. Yeah. do a stack rank. And then, yeah. yeah. And you say, yeah, very fast. And they say, okay. No, you. Uh, it's it's an application process. People, uh, like, like every award, it's a scam. Yeah. Uh, I don't know actually if you pay into it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Did you pay into it? I, I, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> okay, somebody at somebody at Wayno put your put your name in. Yeah, our probably our marketing director made this happen. And then they 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 charged the, the growth over the last three years uh, across all the applicants and then that's how they rack them. So more money's good, but I'm curious what that means for you, like being part of the top five thousand fastest growing companies in America. Like I don't know. Is that significant for you or is it too abstract to be meaningful? I think it's interesting. Um, I looked it up. There's 30 million companies in America and we're number 1,200 on that list. So um, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll touch in in four years. <laughs> it's it's not what I expected. I, I, again, I can't remember what we talked about four years ago, but I would not have predicted that. Yeah. Well, I listened back because I wanted to have the uh, the upper hand on knowledge as mm-hmm. we go through these questions. Yeah, smart. I'm curious if you found there to be a tension, though, between that wanting to keep things small and, and grow carefully versus the the temptation, perhaps, to make more money or take on more clients. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, f- a thing that a lot of agencies fall into is as they get bigger, the work starts to get worse. So that's something that we haven't want to sacrifice. So if we feel that the work isn't there, is the work isn't strong enough, then we, we take stock and, and pause. But we've mostly just been very good at hiring people. So we, you know, a lot of small teams do a lot of good work. What's been the recourse whenever you find the work sort of falling behind a little bit? I'll let you know when that happens. <laughs> You've not done one bad thing yet. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, no, I mean, we, we have, we have, retrospectives on all our projects so we try and learn as we go and we we evaluate sort of the the success of the projects through various different ways but wait dig in there like what are the ways is it uh specifically uh like the client's outcome or is it more internal and how the process went both i mean the the client outcome is ultimately what the is the most important does it actually do the thing that it was supposed to do but then internally also it matters, obviously, that people felt that they contributed in a good way and that they 
it was an enjoyable process. But ultimately, the most important thing is that whatever the, the project was meant to achieve, that it achieves that and hopefully more. And if that's ever not the case or, or a project went poorly, what do you do? We just let uh, fire everybody. Fire Gene? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no, we, we reassess. We look at the things that we could have done better and, and figure out how we can make sure that we don't do that again. Oh, Hallie, can you just give us the answers? How do you not do bad work again? <laughs> again implies that there's been some bad work. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. All right, well, here, let me, let me push into something else then, because yeah. four years ago, you were working 100-hour weeks. Yeah. We asked you about burnout. You said you mm-hmm. were getting there. Mm-hmm. How are you doing now? Have you found a little more balance? Yeah, I, 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 it comes and goes, though. I, I have months where I feel I have this figured out, and then I'm all of a sudden months into not having it figured out. Mm. And every time I think everything is going great, it's usually that I'm just not paying attention. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotten lazy. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't think I have that figured out. I think I'm currently probably fairly burnt out. What are you doing about it? Um, we took a vacation. It was actually the first vacation in, in five years and that I took that was more than a week. Um, went to wow. uh, Eastern Europe and Russia for two weeks. I'm trying my hardest not to do any weekend work. I'm trying to make sure that that I don't say yes to too many things. And when I, you know, when I delegate, that I actually delegate for real. So yeah. the tension for, for a founder is always, you know, everything is important and you want to be in everything. And you have to ask yourself sort of where do you really have, where, where can you have the most value for what the, the time that you have? So there's a lot of things here that I would love to spend more time on personally, but I also know that we have a lot of very smart people and it doesn't really help if I meddle in everything. So I'll give you an example. that I, I say no a lot now so or, or point towards someone else. So someone comes to me with a certain problem and I'll say, well, that's actually not the thing that I'm personally responsible for. This person is dealing with that. Please go talk to them. And I, that was very hard for me for a long time because it, I didn't want to be pushing people off. And it's also hard for other people to understand this. People think that I should care about everything. Um, so when they come to me with a problem, I have to carefully explain to them that although I, I think this is important, there is someone else that has to deal with it. Right. Yeah, when we asked you to come on the show and you tried to delegate it to someone else, it was a little <laughs> weird. <laughs> Classic. Well, I, I, I take all the attention and the credit. So I, I, <laughs> yeah, get that sweet press circuit. Here you yeah. go. <laughs> so I join all the interviews Yeah. and then do none of the work. What do you wish you had more time to do right now? At work, I wish I had more time to focus on long-term strategic vision for the company. That those types of things tend to get lost when you're always in the weeds. And that's what I constantly try to remind myself of. There are these small things that I can solve, or I can try and, and spend this time to think longer term, bigger picture. And that's a constant battle because I do love to solve the smaller problems as well. It's very rewarding to be able to tick off a box. You accomplish something. Yeah. Tell me more about the, the long term. So given that you just said, you know, you wish you had more time to think about long term strategy. Mm-hmm. How are you thinking about the long term of Wayno right now? So when we when we started, 
I think it's fair to say that we had a, f- a sort of a narrow view of what design is and what it can do. And I, I hope at least that my perception of, of that has matured in the last five years. Oh, and, that's a big one. You got to tell uh-huh. me more. <laughs> I, I think the, you know, the, the classic journey, at least for, a, for, for many designers, is they go through, it's mostly a visual practice for some. Or it's mostly a practical practice for some. So they they either start in product or they or or they start maybe in the more visual aspects of it. And then they usually, after a while, they realize that they also have to add the other thing. So if they started in visual, they realize oh it has it has to mean something. It has to have a functional aspect as well. And I think I was pretty much there when when we started. But the the thing that I've come to appreciate a lot more over the last years is the emotional aspect of it and the ability to use design to create uh, an emotional connection between the thing that you're using and the person that's using it. You tweeted recently, I'll just read this quote, you said, designers have become so good at our craft that we can take something completely pointless and make it seem amazing. That's most of today's design. We need to add actual problem solving to our requirements of things that we apply our craft to. Mm-hmm. Is there something specific in mind that you had in mind when you tweeted that, that we're making pointless things look awesome? Subtweet? Yeah. It was not a specific subtweet. I think it's just most of, and I am and I added, I'm very guilty of this as well. A lot of the work that we do is is helping to make things that are already pretty good uh, a little bit better instead of focusing on the things that through design could get exponentially better we've already not to dunk on anyone but let's say take something like um, how do we design stories in in products that's already fairly good i would say there's a lot of very smart people that have spent a lot of time on that mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other problems that are harder maybe but could use our help where we could use the same talents that we have and the same ex- and the experiences that we have uh, and elevate them a lot further than sort of these incremental changes and, and things that we're, we're doing every day. How do you respond to that those problems aren't as financially, they're just not on the same financial playing field as working on stories at Big Co? That's, I mean, that's my world. I have a company that needs to be able to pay salaries for a lot of people, needs to be able to pay rent and do all these things. So that's a very real thing that I think about a lot. It's how do you put food on the table but are are also doing the things that matter. And I, I don't have a great response. I think you just have to try and do both. Well, what what does that look like for Wayno? Because if I had to sort of characterize, <laughs> this is dangerous water, but if I had to characterize your work, it's all incredibly visually stunning right Mm -hmm. and it tends to be for these big corporations and you know we can get into some of the the stuff that you're doing for uh you know social good like like bueno um but i'm curious if if this sort of line of thinking about what designers should be focusing on is changing the kind of clients that you're taking on or or even the clients that you're reaching out to and and seeking to work for Uh, it's a very good question it's a very annoying question yeah, <laughs> because I don't have a great answer. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to ask more annoying questions this yeah. time than I did did five yeah. years ago. <laughs> no, it's it's a very good question, and I think uh, it's worth getting into. Most of the work that we do are for very big companies. To your point earlier, it's 
that's where they have the money to put into these these things and that's where we spend time on and I, I don't I'm also not knocking that I think we do a lot of very interesting work in that field but I would love for us to be able to do more outside of that we've tried we have as you mentioned we have something called Buena where we donate both money and time towards causes that we we care about and yeah including the show yeah <laughs> that's one of the most rewarding things about my job is when we 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 identify those those areas because they're uh, a minimal amount of work or minimal amount of money can have a huge impact there's a lot more we can do and hopefully will do i mean i come to work every day um, into an office that's on the inside is is beautiful uh, on the outside getting into work i meet all sorts of people that have very serious problems that are not being addressed going through san francisco and not seeing how how fucked up the situation is is impossible it's just a it's a very broken system so we can do what we can hopefully to address that to a, to some degree but i don't think we're doing enough or i'm pretty sure we could do a lot more and hopefully we will do a lot more do you see bueno as the vehicle to do that or do you see the the client work you do as a more impactful medium to to have social impact there is, there are clients that we uh, are either working with or are, are in discussions with that are doing very meaningful things. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to send the impression that the other clients are not, but there's obviously a difference in, in, in someone trying to have a really socially impactful change in the world and then, uh, and then it's sort of a fairly typical corporation. So I think it's both. I don't, I don't think it's either or. Can we step back up then a little bit to what you said earlier you've been thinking about this transition between like the the two kinds of things designers tend to start with and and move towards so either uh the visuals or the practicality or functionality of a thing Mm -hmm. has that changed uh as well the way that you and your team are designing because again you know i don't want to pigeonhole you but the things that you make are beautiful and certainly doesn't mean they're not functional but yeah that that transition from beautiful to functional how's that impacting the work you and your team are doing i don't think you were paying attention to what i said okay (laughs) Uh, i think uh what we're trying to hopefully do is uh, i think we started from a place of hopefully being both functional and and beautiful the problem with beauty is people uh, assign it a uh, sort of a frivolous value and they they think that because something is beautiful it doesn't do anything else mm. mm-hmm. and and you can see that both in how we talk about people specifically women and how we talk about things uh, in the world there's a lot of uh, beauty is directly related to joy and it's directly related to a lot of very positive emotions in people so I don't think there's anything negative about things being beautiful. Uh, obviously, they do need to work, but the, the, the third component that I'm most interested in is is the emotional aspect of how does something make you feel because we focus so much, specifically in product design, we focus so much on the granularity of, of speeding things up or making things faster or easier or whatever the KPI is that you're trying to, to get to that we, we stop to really think about the thing uh, and how it makes you feel and how it's actually having an impact on the person that's using it and and maybe even further and how it's making their day better or worse or is it 
did they enjoy using it? Did they uh, feel happy using it? Or did they, even though it was extremely productive, did it just leave them with a black hole in their soul? What are you finding are, are ways, good ways to measure that or understand if you're moving in the right direction there? That's the, that's the, the really tricky part because a lot of these things are, are hard to measure directly. And you know, classically, we, we tend to start to care about the things that we can measure and ignore the things that we can't. And mm-hmm. I think that's the problem that we have. These things that are very easy to measure and so we start to focus on them. And we have these things that we all know or feel to be right but we think that we should be so logical that we should put those aside because they they don't have a number attached to them. So it is the do you think the solution is in finding a a quantitative measurement or or is that just going down a, to a dead end? Is there something else we need to find? I think we need to in some ways move away from this idea that everything should be quantifiable, that everything can or should be measured or that that somehow is a better way of looking at the world. Yeah, I, I wonder though, like, how do you how do you check if the thing is actually you know bringing delight or joy to people? Like, how do you how do you check feelings? Because you can't do it on yourself because you'll you're so close to it. Probably you'll build up a tolerance to it, and you can't trust your own judgment of it anymore. Do you just talk to users a lot? Yes, obviously, talking to people is is the best way to do that. Understanding yourself, though, is extremely important as well because that's where it all starts. You, even with the things that you do measure, they they also come from yourself. You you just put it in a scientific cast. In in most cases, you you create the outcome that you wanted to create anyway. Mm. So it's it's just this this idea that, that we are so rationalist people that that I think is is very harmful. Is this the kind of conversation that you have with prospective clients as well? Like they come in wanting to measure one thing and you have to convince them to measure something else? Uh, often, yeah. We, I, you know, we often try and, and push back on, on the thing that they're trying to achieve. But I think there's a, a large group of people that understand this. And a lot of clients uh, and a lot of the most successful clients understand this because this is really the, the thing that, that works. If you look at Companies like Apple or, or Nike, those are pretty much built on emotion and branding. Mm-hmm. Those are not, I'm not, obviously there's a lot of very smart people in, in, inside those companies doing, bring a lot of value through, through research and, and those types of things. But a, a lot of it is driven by a point of view of this is how we think the world should be. And we're going to do what we can to get you there. One thing that we measure which you pointed out as being not a good thing is you tweeted that measuring the number of years of experience a designer has isn't a good way to determine their skill level. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like what what are the the good ways to measure skill here, especially as it comes to understanding this kind of design, like understanding the emotional component, and is it? Is that something that you learn over time, or do you find that there are people that just inherently get that sooner? Both. I think uh, there's nature and nurture in in pretty much every aspect of humanity. And this is, again, why this is harder, because there is this logical part of the brain that keeps going back to, but but how? How do you scale this? And that's, you know, the the ultimate Silicon Valley question. Is it scalable? (laughs) And I think it is, but in in very different ways than 
the more engineering approach is scalable. It's it's scalable through through teaching empathy and and understanding and through just good human building instead of uh, of of treating everyone like they're a, a calculator. But that that scale thing is so true, and that seems to be this problem that we always fall back on. Like a lot of products that you used when they're young or or small or maturing, there is this much deeper sense of connection to the product or, or it can be more delightful to use and then oftentimes you find as it grows and millions of people use it it sort of becomes like a generic version of itself it has to work on every platform it has to work for every language it has to work for every uh, amount of you know contrast and and work for everyone with different perception of color etc cetera, etc cetera. and things end up becoming a little bit more I guess homogenous over time. Are you finding that scale is sort of the enemy here? Yes, <laughs> uh, I think when you when you get to a place where you have to, the only way for you to succeed is get to the next billion people. You're going to have to really widen the the net and get to make sure that nothing you do offends anyone in any way, that nothing you do triggers any kind of emotion in people that is negative. Uh, and different types of people. So that's why I think we're seeing a lot of, of brands, even big brands, going back to these micro brands of, of thinking, instead of thinking this thing has to work for everyone, is making something that works really well for, for, for a smaller segment of the population. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what's a good example of that that you've seen? Good example. I mean, you can see pretty much every D2C brand is, is doing this. They're coming out with a very strong point of view. They're, they're saying, this is who we are, this is what we do. If they are super successful, I would. some of them might become very generic. But then you look again at someone like Nike, who has managed for, for however long, 40 years, to stay relevant by having a very strong point of view and saying, this is who we are, and this is how we think the world should be. Uh, and these are the things that we value, and hopefully you like it and you'll use our products. But if not, then that's okay. Yeah, I was thinking when you said the D2C, it immediately brought to mind House, that new, I guess, like alcohol drink company that Helena Price is making, you know? Uh, yep. It's like this mix of lifestyle company, but it's so catered to a specific audience who who thinks about alcohol a little bit differently. I, yeah, seeing more of that feels useful, but also seems to also... Like it's going to bump up against this drive of capitalism to get really big, especially since in that case they've raised money. Obviously, I don't know much about Helena's business, but they've raised money and like that's going to be potentially a problem, I would assume. Yeah, the, there is a problem obviously there, but I think it's not mutually exclusive. I think you can get fairly big while still breaking into multiple segments. Facebook, for example, uh, did that through acquiring products that were reaching an audience that they for some reason weren't getting to so instagram for example obviously is uh, hugely successful because it has this very specific function that you could argue over time that they've sort of added maybe a little bit too much but they (laughs) uh, (laughs) they have a, a a sort of a core function to the product and because of that and because of the user base they have even though they're reaching, uh, you know, I don't know the user stats, let's say a billion people, they, they still feel like they have a brand and they have a, a voice. I think that's a really interesting one to 
bring up though, because we're talking about the the way products make you feel, and I don't want to throw Instagram under the bus because there it's too many people that you could find counterexamples for any of this. But Instagram does have a bullying problem, and it has a exaggerated like perception of the quality of everyone else's life, and often it makes you feel worse when you use it. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. seems to be like a bad thing, right? So that scale, even though it is a strong brand that's grown to a billion people, you could argue that this third sort of pillar of the way you're thinking of design is is failing. Do you agree with that? Or do you see that in a different way than, than I'm describing? This is And this is where this gets complicated. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I think there's there's also a lot of other ways to look at that. I don't think it's black or white, but I do think there's there there are negative things to most of today's big platforms. Yeah, I, it's interesting because all of them are working on it, right? They've they've created these problems for society, and they become so big that the problems have meaningful impact, and they're all working on them, right? Like the Facebooks and Instagrams and Twitters, like they're all working on harassment and abuse. It just seems so hard to even predict these downstream consequences 10 years later right or like what happens when it reaches that next order of magnitude of users wait yeah you, you make something that's that's a, a boon for the world when when very few people use it and then once everybody uses it, it becomes a problem right? <laughs> yeah yeah that seems like a problem and we're designing uh, a lot of people are designing in that way right it's like we want to get to that billion without considering what happens when a billion people are using your thing yeah, you know, YouTube, for example, obviously has has been a platform that has been very problematic, but it's also like any of these, and that's why it's a complicated situation. Like, you can go on YouTube and you can learn about anything. Like, my, my, my kid can go on YouTube and learn, you know, how to do the thing that she wants to be able to do, and that's also magical. So it's it's not simple, that's for sure. Yeah, it's like, okay, uh, I want to make a chat app that's secure so that the government isn't spying on me, right? right. Well. Now terrorists use that app, right? You know what I mean? It's like uh, everything is a is a every tool is a weapon, right? Yeah. Although I, I will say that some of those are are avoidable. Um, I think there's a libertarian view of the world in the valley that's not helpful. Yeah. So if you're giving advice to people, uh, let's talk about younger designers in this case, and you have bigger social impact companies and then you have the Facebooks, Googles of the world that objectively will make you more money, objectively introduce you to different kinds of people. Um, It's a different network that you build. Uh, Do you have advice for people that are like straddling that decision or or about to face that decision? Where should they think about spending their time? I don't know if I would listen to my advice. I I think everyone is is different. I think uh, for most for most of the things you do, intent is something you need to evaluate very clearly. If if you're doing things uh, for the right reasons, then that's probably the, the right thing to do. If you are going into them for the wrong reasons, and, and I'm, we can probably shouldn't, but we, we could go into what are the right and wrong reasons. But as long as you're, you're being honest with yourself about why you're doing something and you think it's the right thing to do, then that's what you should do. Yeah. When have people ever been good at self-reflection, though? <laughs> every every villain is the hero of their own story, you know? Like, no one does... No one's evil on purpose. Yeah. It's like the are we the baddies meme, right? Yeah. Like, no one no one really recognizes that they're the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And it, which, which makes it so difficult. 
Yeah, it's it's. I'm being vague here, but I don't. It's because I don't have the answers to a lot of these questions. Oh, totally. But it's it's the things that I'm I think about a lot, and I haven't gotten to a point where I think, and here's how you solve it. Yeah. On that note, I, I did want to talk about you and your relationship with Twitter because when we first started scheduling this episode, you seemed to have flipped a switch and we're we're tweeting all the time. This was, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago. It was a while back and you haven't really let up. Like you've been tweeting very consistently with increasing amounts of transparency and vulnerability. Yeah. Did something change there that sort of initiated this or what what's going on with you and Twitter? <laughs> Are you okay? Are you, Are you okay? okay? <laughs> Is everything all right? Uh yeah, I'm actually very very good i so what happened was when i started Weno, i had a few social accounts most notably dribble but also twitter where i had built up you know a, a decent amount of followers but then when i started Weno, i i thought I, I need to kind of put myself into the background because i i can't really grow this as a company unless i'm a little bit behind because otherwise when the clients come to us, they're always going to be, okay, well, we just want to work with this guy because he's the brand. So I I took myself out of the equation. I changed all my social accounts to be one accounts, and I just focused on, on building that. And then a few months ago, and I was tweeting a fair amount, but mostly just from the one account. Um, and obviously that's you know, even though I, I try to be honest and open there, I it's it's a very different type of expression when you're speaking on behalf of a company. And then a few months ago, somebody internally who is who's great is has took over our account, and I thought, well, it's it's been five years, maybe it's time that I uh, <laughs> I, I can I can say some things. And one of the things I found is, and I've seen this before with myself, is I'm I'm much more comfortable speaking openly and vulnerably in front of a large group than in a small group or even one-on-one. I, I'm a fairly awkward person, so it's, it's, and it's much easier for me to be on stage, for example, and talk to 1,000, 2,000 people than it is for me, or, or here, or than it is for me to be talking to my dad uh, about the things that are going wrong with my life. And I found that the more vulnerable I was, the more free I could be, and it's sort of like exercising demons. It's just getting those things out in the world so they, they stop holding me back. So I strongly believe that you're only as weak as your darkest secrets. So I'm hopefully going to get to a point where I can comfortably share all my darkest secrets. And even though you think there's a lot out there, there's a lot of crap down there still. And if I can get there, if I can really honestly get that all out, I think uh, I'll be free. So it's partially catharsis, then. It's uh, not partially. It's exclusively catharsis. <laughs> Entirely <laughs> catharsis. Right. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I was I was talking to someone the other day, and he was asking me about why I don't do this in small groups, and and it's because I'm not looking for a conversation. It's, and this sounds weird, but if I do it uh, on Twitter or in front of a large group, it's a lot easier for me to just let that sit out there, and that's just it, instead of having to then face. Uh, a lot of questions about it or or have to talk about it in more detail with people that I know or don't know and it's it's much easier for me to just get that out and then it's done and then I don't typically engage with the people that ask me questions because I'm actually not doing it for them 
If it helps someone, that's great. But if it's, that's not the point. So what value is the audience in this case? Is it just that abstraction of people possibly reading it that feels or provides that feeling of catharsis or liberation? Or would you get that same feeling writing this on a blog, not knowing how many people read it? I don't know how many people read it. I, I don't check. But you know how many followers you have, right? Sure, but I could on the blog as well. But I think the, the more the, the, the better question would be to ask, like, would, would I get the same out of it if I wrote it in a journal? Uh, and the answer is no, because it's, it's really the, the fact that, I'm, that it's not a secret anymore. That's the freeing part. Yeah, but so I agree that's a good question, but I'm I'm not sure that it's the better question, Hallie. I'm going to push back because <laughs> if it is in the journal, it is private. So thus, it's not airing that secret. But if you're putting it on the internet, there is this implication that somebody somewhere is reading it, so it's not a secret anymore. I'm just wondering if there's a difference in the audience size. Like, would it be different tweeting it or posting it on Facebook where maybe you have fewer friends? Like, what's the the size of the audience does that have an impact on the way you think about what to post yeah the, the bigger the audience the more freeing is it is for me you know i've spoken at, at, at conferences where there's a few people a handful of people 20 people and that's very hard for me but then i've spoken to conferences where there's five thousand people and that's very easy because it just becomes a blob it's not i'm actually not talking to these people i'm just there's just this mass of of people out there that i you know i'm not really thinking about we talked about this in the show recently too of like yeah we don't like i i get nervous talking in front of a a small you know like a uh, hundred people or something like that on a stage in front of people i get super nervous but this podcast has a much larger audience than anyone i've ever seen in person but i never get nervous for it right but i think it's slightly different than what you're talking about maybe yeah Four million people are going to hear this episode, Hallie. Has that <laughs> changed the way you think about what you're saying? <laughs> Before the heat death of the universe, four million people will hear this episode. I don't know. We might be like a future Bill and Ted type situation. This podcast might bring order to the universe. We don't know. Sure. Yeah. We kind of know. I want to keep drilling on this because I think that catharsis point's interesting. And so you've, you've answered that. But there are people that respond to you. And like I click into the responses and people do reply to you. And at one point you tweeted that you wished you could just not let people reply to you and now i know why yeah you refer, you refer to them uh generically as reply guy <laughs> right <laughs> yeah but have you found any sort of meaningful connection like you you tweet things that are truly vulnerable and if i'm trying to put myself in your shoes are scary to put out there certainly i would imagine there's people reaching out that are thanking you or or have experienced similar things are you finding connection there or is that really just not something you want well, and a lot of things you say, like, warrant further conversation, you know? Yeah, but not with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah, like I said, if people find value in it, I, I'm happy, but it's not why I, I'm doing it. Uh, maybe I'll get to a place where I, and maybe that's further down the line uh, in this, where I'm also trying to help other people work through that shit, but I'm not there yet. I'm just getting it out of myself. And the reply, the reply guy is, is funny because it's one of my favorite people, the, the persona <laughs> on Twitter. It's yeah. just this, yeah. this random person, always a, always a man, that starts to debate you on the thing you just said. And they feel that they're somehow, because it is in a, you know, what you could call a public forum, that, they, I, that people somehow owe them a, a conversation when they don't. It's not, you know, they're, they're, they're hearing something 
because you know they're they're there, but it doesn't mean that they they have any right to a, a further connection about or a further conversation about that topic. Yeah, and they get very angry when you point that out. So, <laughs> and when you uh, subtweet them, <laughs> yes, uh, and it's it's always the same kind of people. It's yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating. It's it's the people that think that their opinion should be heard in every every conversation. Yeah. Well, here, I could be misinterpreting here. I, I'm sure you are. When we started this conversation, I, I'm sure I am. When we started talking about Twitter <laughs> uh, and you talked about sort of your evolution from tweeting from Bueno to your own accounts, I felt like you stumbled when you said the word following, like acknowledging that you have a large following. Did mm-hmm. I misread that or do you have a weird feeling that there are thousands of people following you? I think it's a weird word. Okay. So that I have a hard time using it. It's like fans. Right? <laughs> Cult leader. Yeah. Yeah. People follow me. I have followers. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, yeah that, it, that was mostly that. Okay. Do you want to be famous? Do I want to be famous? Do you, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Hang on. Let me, let me uh, add a little color to that. <laughs> do you want lots of followers? Like, do you want more followers? Is that something that you think about when you tweet? Or do you just... It does what it does. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way. Mm, I mean, that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I think about something like Dribble, when I was because I very specifically built up a following on Dribble because it was it had it was sort of a business tool. So there, absolutely on Twitter for for Ueno also yes because the, there's the reach for myself. Uh, that's not something I think about. Okay, you had a one tweet that. I want to see basically develop as a series, Hallie. So this is part request, and then let's elaborate on the specific one. So you said old man rant. Mm -hmm. People change jobs too frequently. So first of all, I would appreciate more old man rants. I think they're fun. (laughs) Yell yell at clouds more, please. (laughs) Yeah, but talk to me about this one. People change jobs too frequently. I think it's so... This question, man, like... uh, how long should you stay at a company? And I think this one was interesting because your replies to that also blew up, right? Like people going into great detail on on why you might change jobs frequently. So mm-hmm. I'm curious why you tweeted that, and then if if your way of thinking about it changed when people started responding to you. It yeah, it did. Yeah, it it was. So when I said that, I, I wasn't I wasn't wasn't putting the onus on the people. Uh, that changed the jobs. I wasn't thinking about it that way. I was just thinking, you know, and I phrased it badly, but I was thinking more, you know, I think it would be better if if people spend a little bit more time at each job that they have. And and that goes both ways. I wish people found the jobs or, or that they could stay in because they're growing and they're feeling supported and there isn't any kind of negative harassment so i wasn't thinking about it in the way that a lot of people interpret it is as but i understand the interpretation people obviously leave jobs for multiple reasons but my old man rant was i think the first year of a job you're kind of trying to get your sort of you're trying to understand it you're trying to understand the people that you're working with you're trying to understand you know the politics and you're trying to understand all these different things the second year is is you're sort of getting getting ready, and then that really the sort of two plus years is is where you you have the most ability for impact. But in tech, I think we're looking at people staying on for on average uh, 
you know, one and a half to two years. So they're missing out on a lot of, of growth. And then on the flip side, the, the, the companies are missing out on, on a lot of, uh, of knowledge that leaves with these people. So I wish, what I was trying to say is I wish we were at a place where people could stay longer at these companies and felt like they were getting what they needed out of it. How is that informing the way you build Bueno? Because you have an office in SF, you have an office in New York, and those mm-hmm. are two fairly large tech hubs. It would seem to reason that you are also competing with the Facebooks and Googles and Twitters of the world for talent. Yeah. So when you have people, uh, you know, facing that that choice, how do you approach it or what do you say to them? Off the top of my head, I don't remember someone leaving. Or maybe, actually, maybe, yes, one person of three, four years ago left to join the big tech company. But uh, that's that's about it. Why do you think that is? You're too good looking. <laughs> as, as part of it, <laughs> I think the people that join an agency are often interested in, in, in other types of things than people that join a bigger company. And you can see that in many careers where People stay at agency in agency world for a fairly long time, often, or or vice versa. People that go into a big tech company often will work at multiple tech companies after that. So it's it's probably just a different. You're looking for different things, hmm. different types of personalities. So then you haven't had to worry about it, which is a good thing, right? Or, or at least worry about it less than perhaps like a startup would have to worry about it. No, it's not. No, I, I don't worry about it. What I what I think a lot about is how can we how can we have how can we support our people for for long so that they want to stay with us so that they can grow that they have a safe space, and I wouldn't call it a worry, but it's something I think a lot about. Well, to give you an opportunity to brag, can you like say what you're doing there? Because I find that organizational design, that problem of like dealing with internal politics or you know, potentially having the wrong sorts of people sort of bringing a toxic energy to a workspace. Like those are things that are bad and to be avoided. And have you thought of or encountered situations like that with Wayno that you've had to rectify? Yeah, we've had people that for whatever reason didn't feel like they, they could add uh, value inside the company. So that's usually a good a segue into thinking, well, maybe there's another place that would fit you better. Can I brag? I, I, we do a lot of different things, but it mostly just starts with the hiring process of trying to understand the people that join the company so that they're not taking time bombs. Yeah. So what have you learned in the hiring process in the last, I guess, five and a half years at this point? To trust my instincts. Mm. I And I know this is a tough one again because it doesn't scale. But I think when you meet someone, you have a you have a a gut instinct about them and this is also problematic because you also have a lot of of baggage from uh your previous experiences yeah previous experiences and all these types of things you know you you have a lot of prejudices against certain things you know that are known or unknown so i don't know if this is good advice but for me it at least it's the only one that that i can follow is i've noticed when i have an instinct i should try and follow it well, it's hard to replicate mm-hmm. uh, unless you can productize your instinct, Holly. 
<laughs> that would be an interesting side project. Actually, you know what? I feel like Wayno is the productization of your instinct. I feel like your new about page is just this crazy like reflection of, I don't know. It's weird, but it's delightful. And I, I don't know. That's kind of you, right? <laughs> did, you, did you like it? I loved it. I loved the awards video guy. <laughs> is that what you're calling him? The awards no, the awards photographer guy. He's the awards photographer, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It is, when you when you start a company, you don't realize this, or at least I didn't realize it, but everything, all your faults, and hopefully all your positives also, just magnify. It is a manifestation of of the founder, usually, or the founders. And for good or bad, that's sort of how a company at least starts out. It's... The person that's making all the decisions in the beginning obviously creates something that is a reflection of who they are. So every every company starts to look like your dog. <laughs> what's wrong with my dog? <laughs> what's what's one thing you wish you could change about Wayno right now? Are you getting tired of these uh, hard hitters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a- more softballs. Would you would you prefer? <laughs> yeah, I can softball it. Tell me about the work you're most proud of. How do you stay so pretty? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the, the first question was the best question. What we're actively doing is, is thinking about how we make the best possible work. Uh, and it goes back to a previous question you had, like, what is good work? And that, that's sort of the journey that we're, that we're on and we're going to continue to be on is how do we define what we call good work and how do we prepare ourselves to actually do good work and how do we then do good work and i don't know if it's the one thing i would change but it's the one thing that we're working on the most all right i want to get into cool things but before we do i thought i would bring back a little touch of design details 1.0 and uh, we Mm -hmm. used to ask everybody at the end of the, the episode what keeps you up at night and i guess i want this to be different from that what we just talked about with you know what you're working on with Wayno or what you wish you could get better at at Wayno. So I guess this is more personal. Uh, what keeps you up at night? Can you clarify what you're thinking? Like what what is it that in life that makes me worried? Yeah, I wanted to clarify that it's not asking you to repeat what you just said. You and the team are thinking about at Wayno. It can yeah. be maybe something a little more personal, what you're comfortable talking about, but it could also still be about work or design. Just something that feels like a a problem you've yet to unravel. And, you know, I watch you tweet about design process and I watch you tweet about soft skills and rant about designers not staying at their companies uh, for a long enough time to to have impact. Like anything like that that feels um, unanswered or or perhaps gray in your mind would be interesting to hear about. There's a lot of things in my personal life that uh, I think about, uh, but I'm not going to get into that. I think the thing I think a lot about is how do we how do we match our intent with the impact that we have because i see this happen so many times where people at least they say they have a certain thing that they're trying to accomplish but their the way they go about it is extremely poor and often very detrimental to the thing that they're trying to achieve so that's one of the things that i i wouldn't say keeps me up at night but one of the things that i think about a lot is you see it in other people and you see their self-destructive behavior a lot but how do I see it in myself what is it that I'm doing that's actually holding me back from the things that I want Mm. 
is is this like the uh, everybody else's mistakes are because they're bad or because they're evil and my mistakes are because it was an honest mistake or out of my control? Is it that sort of feeling? Yeah, partly. And how, what do you do when you flip that? You know, you have to be fairly comfortable with yourselves to ask this. But what if everything in your life is your f- problem and your fault? What if everything that happens to you is f- your fault? And this is extremely, and I understand how this could be uh, interpreted, there's a lot of people that have shit happen to them that, that don't deserve it anyway. But what if you close that off for a little bit and just, and for me, myself at least, what if I close that off and just think, you know, I can't control other people. I can only control myself. So everything that's manifesting in my life is because of myself. Then if, if I start from that assumption, then how can I change myself to be more effective in getting what I want in life? Mm. Uh, because it's, it's so easy to blame others, and it's very comforting to think that you're the the, the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. But to your earlier point, everyone is the hero of their story. Mm-hmm. Everybody's the star of their own movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And how can I just accept the responsibility uh, for the way my life is? Because if I do, then I think the next step is that I can actually change it. If I don't, then that implies that I can't change it. I think I hear you, and in theory, it seems like the right thing, yet it also seems like the uh, putting an impossible amount of weight on yourself to be correct. Yes, that's why I I don't want to necessarily put this out as advice to anyone else. I see. But this is what I'm doing for myself. Okay. But I understand how, for multiple people, this is very problematic advice. I see. Okay. Well, <laughs> believe me, Marshall and I have given lots of grain of salt advice. So <laughs> you're in good company. It's the only kind we give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It depends. It depends. Well, Hallie, let's wrap up with cool things. So at the end of our show, we like to share a cool thing or an interesting thing that we found this week that people who listen might also find interesting. Mm-hmm. So Marshall or I can go first if you want, or if you want to kick us off, feel free. No, you go because I have to think about what I'm going to say. <laughs> hey, I asked you to come prepared. <laughs> okay. It's okay. We we'll think start. of ours we'll at the last second every time. Too. Yeah, yeah. All right, Marshall, do you want to start? Uh, okay. I got a TV show this time, an actual like TV show on, I think it's on CBS. It's a, it's a show called Songland. Have either of you heard of this show? No. No. Okay. So it's your, it's your typical you know, booted off the island kind of a thing where it's like, you know, it's, it's a competition show. But instead of being cooking or, you know, a survivor, it's writing songs. So they bring in unknown songwriters and they uh, there's four per episode and there's one musician that is like the guest musician. They've had a bunch of different people like Will I Am and Megan Trainer and Old Dominion is like a country band, I guess. Macklemore, Aloe Black, a uh, bunch of people. They'll come in and they have uh, four singer-songwriters that have a similar style to theirs and a song that could fit into their lexicon. They perform that song. There's three other judges in addition to the to the guest musician, and those judges are, are kind of like, they're producers, right? They're not necessarily judges. They're, they're, they're producers. And the, the artist ultimately picks three of those four songs that are performed to uh, be iterated on. So each of the producers takes one of the singer-songwriters, works with them for an unspecified amount of time, 
and crafts the song to be better because they're very good at their jobs. One of the producers is Ryan, what's his face from <laughs> One Republic? Yeah. The guy who wrote Ryan, what's his face? Too late to apologize. Yeah, uh-huh. Ryan, what's yeah, it's all one word, what's his face? Anyways, they're, they're very good at what they do and they, they craft these songs and, and, and make them better for the artist. They, you know, kind of personalize them so it has a better chance of being picked. And at the end of it, the artist hears the latest iterations and, and chooses one and then they record that song themselves, which hopefully gives a boost to all of these songwriters. They get their name out there and people see what they do. But it's just a really interesting process to see because, you know, you see this raw song come in and it's usually pretty good. And you're like, oh, that's got a good hook or, you know, good, good uh, melody. And then, you know, the producers do their magic and you're like, holy shit, I can totally hear this on the radio, you know. Hmm. And there's a there's actually an iTunes playlist of all of the songs. So they, they put all of the songs, whether they got picked or not, they put a recording of them out on streaming services. So if you want to listen to that, you can find... I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put a, a, some playlists. But it's all really good songs. I, and, and it's unfortunate that some of them don't get picked because they're, they're all super high quality. It's not like one of those shows where it's like Hell's Kitchen where like everybody kind of sucks and it's just like who sucks the least. <laughs> everybody on the show is good. It's just who's, who's the best. Okay. So Songland, that's my cool thing. That's on Netflix, you said? I've been watching it on Hulu. Gotcha. But I think it's CBS that makes it. All right, cool. My cool thing this week is going to be a dig on Hallie and his design agency called Weno. And the cool thing this week is a stool called Kohler. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a stool that Weno is going to make, but I don't know if they made it. And I wanted to ask Callie what's up. <laughs> it's called Kotler. Kotler. Because Kotler means, Kotler means stool in Icelandic. We've gone through multiple iterations. We have... <gasps> it's still going. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still ongoing. We we paused because we we had sort of a, a pretty much a final version of it, and I thought, do I want? Is this good enough for us to say let's make a thousand of these? And even though I I liked it, I couldn't answer that question with a yes. So hmm. we, we want to go back to the drawing board. You were also making a light too, right? Yeah, and that's actually further along, and that's hopefully coming out in the next few months. Tell me a little bit about this. I'm sort of hijacking my cool things just because I wanted to actually know more about these products, but why are you making physical products, or what's going on with this sort of branch of... Is this even a branch of the business? Is this the thing? Business implies that it will make money, and it won't, but it, it is more of an experiment for us of... You know, the people keep asking, if you're a studio or an agency like us, a lot of people ask, well, are you working on your own products? And it always implies, are you, you know, are you doing a digital product? And I really don't want to do that. I don't believe in that model, really. You don't want to make a weather app? Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, but, <laughs> I, but I do like this idea of, of having side projects. So we do have a lot of them. Uh, and those are a couple. But we have a lot of different things that we sort of try out. And most of them are very stupid. But these things are, 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 are kind of nice. And they, they range in everything from that video you saw of the, the award photographer that, you know, was just something that a couple of people here made. And then we found a use for it, but it was never, you know, it was not planned at all. Uh, and this one is a little, this one is a little bit more planned, but it's still, it's still fun. Okay, cool. Well, then my cool thing is going to be those, but I'll also just plug the, the side project. So there's, 
basically a list in the window footer footer there's you have a playground site which is all the side projects of people internally uh the interview being a particularly high production value one <laughs> yeah. which is uh, <laughs> a fake fake interview uh with window yeah okay that's my cheat thing now you're up i hope you've thought of something really cool don't blow it don't blow okay it. so this just to clarify the rules here i, I have to say something that i like <laughs> yes and then from any point in time from any point in time it's not because you call it cool things this week nope just cool things cool things yeah cool things that we say this week but are not necessarily from this week cool is a very problematic word you maybe you want to change that to like interesting things okay uh what's problematic here uh, because the thing that i'm thinking about isn't maybe cool but it's extremely oh. interesting <laughs> okay I think interesting is cool, Hallie. Yeah, yeah. We like, but we'll be the judge of that. How about you just say it, and then we'll tell you whether it's cool or not. Yeah. Well, we are the arbiters of cool in this situation. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's going to be on my tombstone. Arbiter of cool. <laughs> I think uh, life might disagree with you on that. But we, <laughs> the thing that I want to talk about is a book called Educated. It's it's a book that I that I wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, and it's that I stopped, uh, that I read a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's about a woman Tara Westover, who grows up in a in a, in a family that's sort of a survivalist type family. They're very religious. They don't send their most of their kids don't go to school. Many of them don't have birth certificates. They're completely off the grid. And they have this very overbearing, demanding father figure who is sort of controls their whole lives and, and sort of is this force in the story that's it's very hard to, to ignore. But then it's about her journey going from that upbringing uh, all the way through to getting a, a, a doctorate at Cambridge and then writing this book about herself. It's a, it's a self, uh, it's a biography. And it's just so... First of all, it's extremely well, well written. It's just fascinating. So it's her story is just, and the, she tells it so well, and the people she uh, has in her family and all the things that she goes through. And then just the, uh, and it goes through so many different uh, peaks and valleys of her understanding herself, her not really understanding herself, and I just couldn't recommend it more. Awesome. Well, Hallie, you know what I think is cool? Uh-huh. Getting an education. Go to school, kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish you would just actually laugh instead of stifling it so people would know that you think it's funny. Don't be a fool. Stay Go. in school. <laughs> awesome. Well, this is great. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this, um, but I've added it to my list. Thanks, Hallie. Mm-hmm. You're welcome, Brian. This reminds me of a, a, a story I heard, a true story, of a young woman who had a similar upbringing and didn't have a birth certificate. She was that removed from society. And when she turned 18 or whatever, she's like, okay, I'm going to leave this weird middle of nowhere family thing we got going on and like, you know, see with the rest of the world and found out that like, you can't do anything if you can't prove that you exist. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. She went through the same thing. She also didn't have a birth certificate. Wow. Oh my God. No, her aunt had to go to the courthouse and testify that she was who she was. Wow. Jeez. Wow. Okay. Cool things, y'all. Cool yeah, things. That counts. Slightly depressing there at the end, but, but we're good. <laughs> Hallie, anything we missed that you want to say now before we go or otherwise where, where people should follow you to read more things that are on your mind? Yeah, I need more followers. 
<laughs> no, I think this was it was interesting. It was not the conversation I was necessarily expecting, but uh, in a good way. Was that a question? In a in a good way. What were you expecting, actually? I wasn't. I was. Yeah, maybe I wasn't expecting anything. <laughs> you you had low expectations for me. Cool. <laughs> I remember the first one being a lot easier. You definitely stepped up your game in terms of hitting on the, the tough questions. That's all, Brian. This is why yeah. I stay shut up during these interviews, because Brian's the one who asks good questions. Yeah. Well, I, I, I try, but I appreciate that you push back on the questions, too. Well, one thing, so I did, you know, when I listened back to that one from four years ago, I could hear how nervous I was talking to you. And okay. at this point, you and I have met up several times and hung out, and you've been on the show. This is your third time on the show, and uh, I think, like, XOXO, and we were in Hawaii together. So I feel a little bit more comfortable but also listening back i recognized how we asked some pretty like just not questiony questions you know like tell us about the clients you have Mm -hmm. what was it like working with facebook yeah but i think that's a reflection of like how interested i was in that kind of thing at the time and now i i want something a little grittier yeah well probably because you've experienced a lot of new problems and things like okay let me ask uh let me ask these harder questions to somebody who's been in this longer than i have yeah maybe yeah. answered them themselves i never listened to myself because i it's, it's just very hard for me but i am thinking about listening to that because i'm hoping that i said things that i think now are stupid and that I'm hoping that means that I've grown up a little bit. If you're anything like me, you will certainly have said something (laughs) that is stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, all I can hope is that, you know, in the same way I listened back to that one, I hope in four years or whenever it is that we get to do this again, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I I get to listen to this line of questioning and be like, wow, (laughs) those were bad questions. So hopefully we're all getting better. Yeah, I hope so. You know, one thing that you did say that Mm -hmm. I think holds up and... I know it holds up because you tweeted about it recently, but you said designers should learn how to write before they learn how to code. Okay. Yeah, that's true. So that held up. I don't know. Uh, did I say it that, uh, that strongly? Because I, I don't want to indicate that everyone, anyone's journey is, is wrong, but I do very, very much believe in the power of being able to write. You qualified it very well, and you talked about the okay. impact of words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, don't don't worry. Go listen back if, if you need some, <laughs> some reassurance. It was good. Yeah, I don't think I would have said it the way you said it. <laughs> yes, you said it much better than, than I did. All right, well, thank you uh, for taking your Saturday afternoon to hang out with us. Really appreciate it. This has been wonderful, and I love your studio here. It's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> the, that light over in the corner, that one's new. Mm-hmm. Once you ship your light, we'll replace it with yours. But uh, yeah. It's very nice. Yeah, the studio is beautiful. It's nice to have you in. Yeah, you look good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. You smell good. Smell good, good, look good, but most importantly, you sound good. Happy to hear from you. Wow, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ali. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been episode 314. Thank you again so much to Hallie for taking time out of his Saturday afternoon to chat with us and be open and talk about hard things so thank you we hope you enjoyed it let us know what you thought we're on twitter at design details fm tweet at us let us know what you thought give us feedback let hallie know what you thought follow hallie on twitter oh my god so many things to do are you writing these down as a task list (laughs) yes uh one item to add to that list should you have feedback suggestions ideas questions or anything that you think we should be talking about 
open an issue on our repository on GitHub. We have a repo for design details where each issue is uh, something that Marsh and I can dig into for future episodes. So we've got some questions on there that we'll be getting into in the next few weeks. And if you have your own questions, please add it there. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I got to say, I'm proud of us for, for how well we've been systematically making our way through that thing. We've Ship been going away. Like away. Just numerically one. I think we're through the first seven at this point. Yeah. Just knocking them down. You set them up, we knock them down. So keep setting them up and we'll keep knocking them down. <laughs> That's it. Uh, GitHub.com slash FM. Links in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who's doing that. And that's it. All right. Long episode this time. Long episode. Thanks for sticking in there. And we'll see you next week. Uh, Bye.